the City Hill podcast. We really hope you enjoy today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about City Hill, please visit our website, cityhill.london. So today we're going to be doing week five of our series one. We're looking through Mark's Gospel, chapter one. And this week I got some wild, wild thoughts for you guys. I got some wild, wild (laughs) thoughts I want to share with you. So Mark, chapter one, verses 12 and 13. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. One of the things that Mark does that the other gospel writers don't do is they kind of post all these thoughts around what they say. So they will frequently be dropping, uh, and this scripture fulfilled this by Isaiah, this scripture fulfilled this, or this means that, and they kind of expound on things. Mark doesn't tend to do that. In the first verses, he kind of does it once where he says this was to fulfill Isaiah. But generally speaking, what Mark does is he just throws out all these different words, shooting off all these different pictures, all these different images that were designed to illuminate, yeah boy, illuminate within his audience's mind that as soon as they read that word, it would start to trigger pictures that they understood, pictures that they shared, and pictures they held onto. In these two verses, Mark uses phrases that are so frequented by his target audience that as soon as he says them, their minds, the synapses in their brains would have been firing and they'd have been clicking into about, man, I don't even know, limitless amounts of different pieces of information that would all be making one clear, decisive statement, and that is that Jesus is the Messiah. Just from these two verses, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. I'm not going to lie this Sunday, just these two verses. I feel like, man, if, I, if this was like so solid crew in 21 seconds, I'd be going like, man, you know, 21 seconds, give me some more time. Give me some more time. Give me 29 minutes to chat this rhyme in time. That's what I'm saying. Because in these two verses, Mark is jamming in so much stuff that you and I just don't appreciate. We breeze through this as just information, but he's painting all these different types of picture. I love the fact the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. The reason that's important is it's not a standalone statement. It connects to what we were talking about last week. Last week, Jesus was baptized. And as he came up out of the water, the, 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 the heavens, it says, were torn open. The heavens were torn open. The Spirit of God descended on him like a dove. So the same Spirit that descended on him like a dove is now driving him out into the wilderness. When the heavens torn open and the Spirit descended on him, the Father spoke and said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. As soon as God made that statement, the spirit chucked Jesus in the back of the car, put him in the whip and drove and head straight out for the wilderness. And it's connected to the statement, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Because what would happen is throughout the whole of the Old Testament, you would have people step out in faith to do what God had called them to do. And you'd have people falling short, people failing, people being tested and failing. And then the statement summarizing their existence But with Jesus, it's totally different. As he comes out of the waters of baptism, God makes a declaration over the entirety and the completeness of who he is in that moment, not at the end of what he achieves. And he says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And straight away, the spirit leads him out into the wilderness for that to be put to the test. And when we talk about the wilderness, there are so many layers in this 
It says that he was with the animals. So it talks about the wilderness. It mentions it again. He was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals. Some theologians, some different people say this is a picture relating, showing Jesus being like a, an eschatological Adam. Like he is the, 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 the second promise. The Adam, there was a promise that he would come, that he would, one would come who would, the snake would bite his heel and he would crush his skull. And straight away in this moment, it's like Jesus going back to the garden and the animals are at peace around him and all this. But then other guys go, no man, that's totally dead. This is a wilderness. This isn't a garden scenario. It's not the same thing. I want to suggest today that actually it is that and it's not that at the same time. I want to suggest that actually that we've been banished from the Garden of Eden and outside of the garden, we're all living in the wilderness and nothing is in right harmony and nothing is in right standing with God. But Jesus straight away is bringing us back to this point and Mark in this moment wants to, for some of his audience, he wants to reference Eden. For some of them, he wants to attribute Jesus and connect him to Adam. But for others in his audience, he wants to look at something different. He says he was in the wilderness being tempted by Satan for 40 days. And when he just says this one, one phrase, drop it in 40 days, he starts bringing up all sorts of vivid images. For some of his audience, they'll be going, oh, it's Moses, it's Moses, because Exodus 24, that Moses entered the cloud and went up to the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. The first man to ever download data from the cloud. And we know that it was a large file because in the Hebrew it says it was downloading for 40 days. <laughs> So when they, when they hear him say 40 days being tempted, being tested, they're thinking of Moses, oh, receiving the law, receiving God's instruction, receiving all that God has. So some people are hearing that image and that image says that he's the Messiah. But then other people are hearing Elijah. Some of the listeners are, uh, and, and readers of this passage are seeing 1 Kings 19, verse four, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. This is Elijah after he's, he's laid it, the smack down on all the prophets of Baal and one woman has threatened to kill him and now, He's running to this situation. A day's journey in the wilderness came and sat down under a broom tree and he asked that he might die saying, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life. for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. He looked and behold, there was a, his head, at his head was a cake baked on hot stones in a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, arise and eat for the journey is too great for you. He arose, he ate and he drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God, tying in with Moses again in the same location. And so some of the guys are listening and they're like, this is like Elijah. This is like the prophecy about there being one who'd be like him, a second Elijah, a second coming of him. And some of them are tapping into that and some of them are getting lit by that. And the angels being there just confirms that. It just strengthens that kind of image and picture in their mind. But for others, again, it's totally different. Again, it's, it's Deuteronomy chapter eight. Remember the Lord your God. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that God swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you. These 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you, testing in the wilderness, testing, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you, and let you hunger and fed you with the manner which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes out of the mouth of the Lord. Some of them will be switching on to that vibe. And others will be switching on to that vibe as well throughout the Christian tradition, because actually when the temptation with Satan happens, Mark doesn't list the juicy details. He's not, he's not interested in what Satan has to say. He's not interested in, in Jesus overcoming. For him, it's a given Jesus overcomes and nails it and slam dunks all over that. For him, he doesn't even entertain it. But when we look at the, the, the temptation story, 
This is one of Jesus' very responses. So he's there for 40 days in the wilderness, the 40 years here, and you go, well, it's 40 years, 40 days, they're not comparable. But actually in Numbers 14, verse 26, and the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, how long should this wicked congregation grumble against me? I've heard the grumblings of the people Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness and all of your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me. Not one shall come into the land where I swore to you that I would make you dwell, except Caleb and Joshua. But your little ones that you said would become prey on this journey, I will bring them in and they shall know the land that you've rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies will fall in this wilderness and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years and you shall suffer for the faithfulness, faithlessness until the last of your bodies lies in the wilderness according to the number of days in which you spied out the land. 40 days, a year for each day, you shall bear for your iniquity 40 years and you shall know my displeasure. How do we know Jesus nailed it in the wilderness? Because he didn't have to wander around for 40 years waiting to get it right. He didn't have to come around a second time. When he was in there for 40 days and the pressure was on him to disbelieve what God had laid out for him, what God had said for him, he didn't, he didn't drop the ball. He didn't tap out. When Satan came going, hey man, it's hungry out here. You're in the wilderness. You've had no food. You can make some bread from these stones. And Jesus said, that man should not live by bread alone. He's like, I know what time it is. I know what's happening. You know what I love about it? The fact that the angels were there ministering to him. Uh, man, I could just see those guys at the moment. If there was gonna be a meme generator going on right now, it would be that moment where you see that guy out in the out in the park with his boys and he just drops that one line and then his arms go like that and all the boys are like, oh. In that moment when Satan is going like, hey bro, these stones, you could turn them and make some bread. At that moment, Jesus goes, I know what time it is. I know where I am. I know this is the 40 days. I know what's happening in this moment. I don't live by bread alone. You, you've made the mistake, Satan. You think that I'm, I'm interested in, in, in my sustenance being sustained by this, but I know that the only true sustenance comes by living off every word that comes out of the mouth of my Father, of God. Because you know what? That's where the manna from heaven came. When there was no field in the wilderness, God sustained them. And Jesus was unwavering in his faith and he was tempted by Satan. You and I so often, you know what, when God has a plan for us and he calls us and he asks us to step out in faith and follow him with our lives, what happens is when it's not Hawaii, we tap out. When it's not Hawaii, you know, God calls you to do something, you step out to do it and it gets really difficult really fast. And all of a sudden I've seen so many guys I know that wanted to do great things for the Lord back out when I meet them and go, oh, you're still doing that thing that God told you you were going to do. And they were like, oh, well, you know, it was it was hard. And, you know, anything that the Lord calls you to do shouldn't be that hard. You know, he, like his, his blessing should be upon it. And so I tapped out. And then I think to myself, Jesus is 40 days in the desert with El Diablo, a.k.a. Lucifer, <laughs> with no food among the wild beasts, and I've got some wild, wild thoughts about what calling is, because Jesus at those moments, the things that Satan's saying, every single one of those things, people talk about, oh, first of all, it's about the, it's about the, the flesh and about hunger, and then later it's about glory and splendor, and then it's about worship, and they talk about these different types of things, it's about, actually, it's only about one thing, because actually the imagery that Mark gives us of Eden is what this is all about because Adam was in the garden and all Lucifer did was the snaky snake snake came along and wanted to undermine one thing, his faith in what God had said. And the whole way through this, Satan is trying to do one simple thing. He just wants to move his faith, that's it. He just wants to move his faith. He wants to 
aligned that maybe God isn't the one that provides for you, so why don't you do this? Oh, this plan about you coming and laying your life down. Oh, I could give you all these kingdoms. I could bring it all back around to you. Oh, man, you know, you could, you could jump from here. And, and it says that his, his angels, his angels will catch you. That you won't, you won't even touch that ground. And he says, you should not put the Lord your God to the test. You and I talk about that phrase and how we think about it and perceive it as like, when things happen in your life, you don't ever test the Lord. You don't ever, but for Jesus, the way, what he's really saying is, he's saying, I don't need to test the Lord. I know the Lord and I know he's got this. I don't put him to the test because I know his character. His character isn't in question. Who he is, isn't in question. Man, I tell you, as he's dropping those kind of lines, there's angels. Oh. <laughs> he's already doing the cross pose. Hands out extended, falling back, catching him. Man, I can hear some angels going, can you feel the burn? Cause you're gonna feel it for eternity. <laughs> Man, Psalm 91, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the most high who is my refuge, no evil should be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands, they will bear you up. Least you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample underfoot. Oh my days. So in this passage, it says that he was with the wild animals. So you have this picture of Jesus being with the wild animals. You have Edom, that everything's back in harmony. This is a suggestion that he's the one who's gonna realign things, bring harmony back, bring this, this kind of ideal, this gardeness, that where there's a wilderness, the garden will thrive again. We will thrive again. We will know God again. There will be peace again. And all this kind of imagery going on. At the same time as this Psalm, prophetically speaking about that, it's speaking directly into the temptation that he's facing. And Jesus even quotes it. He's letting Satan know, I know what time it is. I know what you're talking about. I know what you're quoting. I know what you're bringing up. And I'm letting you know that I know what time it is, this time that the serpent gets trampled under my feet because that's what it says just a few verses later. So I'm not tapping out to what you have to say. I'm not giving out to the temptation you're bringing my way because I know that if I stay true, that if I trust him in my situation, I'm gonna be trampling you straight under my feet. Daniel chapter six, verse 19. This is all the imagery in just two verses that Mark is playing with because he knows his target audience and how the Hebrew people have the scriptures memorized and he's bringing it all together, this elusive imagery, knowing that even if he doesn't hit every single one of these shots, he's spraying the bullets out in one, two verses, knowing that someone's gonna get hit by one of those bullets on one of those topics. Then at daybreak, the king arose and went in haste to the lion's den. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O servant Daniel of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. I love that, man. I tell you what, if a king, whether he was tricked or not, put me in a lion's den expecting me to die, the first words out of my mouth wouldn't be, O king, live forever. They'd be like, you come down here and you deal with these boys, man. I'm getting out, you can take my place. O king, live forever. He's going to point him to the means of living forever. My God, because that's where you shift your faith to. That's where you shift your trust to. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you. O king, I have done no harm. I was found blameless. So when Mark in his gospel says that he was driven out in the whip, by the Holy Spirit to the wilderness and that Satan tempted him for 40 days and that in the midst of that, he wants you to know he was with the animals, 
So some people have said like, oh, it's because of how harsh it was. He was with the wild beasts. It was putting him on edge. It was putting him off, that kind of stuff. No, it's he's with them. Like there is companions. It's a, it's a, it's a reference to, to Egypt. But the other reference here is to Daniel. Oh, king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the mouths of the lions. He's with the wild animals and with the angels. And they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him, before God. I was found blameless before God. In this moment, Mark wants his audience to know above all other things that Jesus is found blameless. And the reason the angels are present is because they're holding shut the mouths of the lions because none of them can touch him. And as he's surrounded by the wild beast, the lions are present and the serpent in, in the Psalms is present in the snake of snakes the one from the beginning, Lucifer himself, and Jesus is just trampling on all these heads. He's dancing on all these heads. He's walking straight over all of it because he's found blameless. And Lucifer is just trying to tempt him and tempt him and tempt him that Jesus is devoured. But like Daniel, he is there in the presence of these angels and the mouths have been shut because he's blameless. Straight away, Mark wants his audience to know that Jesus is the Messiah. He wants them to know that Jesus is blameless. And so that when he gets to the end of his gospel, where he starts the baptism process by saying he saw the heavens torn open and God declared out of it. He is the only one who uses that phrase. Everyone else uses open. We looked at this last week and he uses that word torn open again. And it's Jesus on the cross. And as he dies, the heavens are torn open and they are torn open from the moment of his baptism. And they finally finish the tear as he dies the veil is torn from the top to the bottom. And it's referenced in the top because it's the same tear that's happened from the heavens and it's been following all the way down. And now in that moment of complete obedience, when he says it is finished, where the temptation can no longer get to him, where Jesus can no longer tap out. You know what? His biggest temptation moment doesn't come in the wilderness. His greatest temptation comes in the garden. When he says, if this can be passed from me in any way, this cup can pass. Nevertheless, not my will be done but yours. He, he doesn't, he's unwavering. John the Baptist, the greatest among men. Do I look for another? Elijah, he's done this amazing thing, seen the whole nation turn on its head, see the people liberated from these false gods. The prophets of Baal overturned, and now he's scared under a tree, shaking, and then he realizes, oh, I'm just like my forefathers. I've screwed up like everyone else. Adam and Eve in the garden. Moses doesn't enter into the promised land, but Jesus is unwavering. Mark wants you to know in these two verses, he is blameless. And the reason it matters that he's blameless is Jesus is tempted by the devil in the wilderness and with the wild beasts, the lions and the snakes. That's how the Hebrew people would have interpreted that phrase. Lucifer, the snake of all snakes from Eden, and the angels back the ting because he is blameless. The writer wants you to know that he is among the beasts and the angels showed up holding the mouths of the lions because he's blameless, because he's blameless, because he's blameless. And if Jesus is blameless, then he fully paid for your sins upon the cross. And the only thing that Satan is doing today is he cannot tempt Jesus, but he can tempt you to not believe that Jesus was blameless. He can tempt you to not believe fully in the cross of Christ, that you can truly be forgiven of your sins, that you can know the harmony, that you can live in a wilderness, but really at the same time be living in the Garden of Eden. That there may be an angel guarding the Eden, but we have access because of Jesus and because of his blood, that the heavens have truly been torn, not just for Jesus' eyes as the Father declared it, but the tear finished in the temple veil. I got some wild, wild thoughts this morning. I got some wild thoughts that Jesus is blameless and what it means for you and what it means for me 
is that the deepest hurts, the deepest scars, the deepest fears, the deepest apprehensions, the deepest, darkest failures have no power over you or over me anymore. They no longer define us. What defines us is that he was blameless, that he was blameless, and that we can live in the same capacity as he did. I believe that God is calling us to understand that temptation and that greatness comes in the most difficult of times, but he asks us just to purely believe, just to cling on with that simple fabric of trust in who he is and in his blameless state. Your greatest deliverance, victory, life change always comes in the most adverse circumstance. Faith is the only currency, the only thing that matters in this world and the one to come. Faith, 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 faith. Jesus is blameless and he's paid the price for your sins and for my sins that we can know him and we can enter into a life we never fully deserved. I'm going to pray for us today. Father God, I I thank you for these wild thoughts I've got this morning of your absolute grace. I thank you, Lord, that Mark, when he wrote these two verses, was cramming in so much pictorial illusion that he was pointing to so many different things i thank you above all things that all of those roads lead to one thing that jesus is blameless i thank you that the mouths of the lions were closed by the angels because they wanted them to know that he was the one who would restore eden that he would be the one who would restore right balance that he would turn the wilderness of our lives overflowing with new sustenance and life more abundantly through what he would achieve I thank you, Father, that he was blameless. I thank you that he didn't lose faith. I thank you that though they scouted the promised land for 40 days and they ended up losing faith, I thank you that Jesus never lost faith in the mission that he was to perform. I thank you that his mission was for you, was for all of us, and that we could be drawn near to you. I pray, Father God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would come and you would minister to our hearts and to our minds. I pray that you would help us to keep the faith in you, in your calling upon our lives, in who you want us to be, and in the transformation you have for us. I pray, Father, this week, we would take steps to trust in you. We would take steps to trust in you in the darkness of our adversity. Everything around Jesus was trying to tell him that you aren't who you are and that this isn't going where you've said it will. But he was faithful to you even to the point of death, even death on a cross, that his name, the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that you are Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we pray, Lord, that you would get your glory from our unfaithful lives through his faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen. We really hope you enjoyed today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about City Hill, please visit our website, cityhill.london.